You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 464 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, September 4th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about who the sons of God were in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. So it says in Genesis 6, 4, if you're not familiar, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took any of them that they would for wives and that they went into them and that the offspring that were born to the sons of God and the daughters of men were giants. Genesis chapter 6 introduces us to this very odd story of pre-flood civilization on the earth. What are we to make of it? Who are these guys, these sons of God? Well, there's a couple of different theories. There's a couple of different categories of theories, I should say. Basically, two categories of answers. The first is, in my opinion, boring. And the second is exciting. (laughs) But This is the setup for the flood. Noah is introduced hereafter, and we're told that these are the days of Noah, and that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that God commanded Noah to build an ark. God is looking at the earth filled with violence in Genesis chapter 6, and he regrets, it says, that he made man. Now, some look at that, and there's all kinds of things that we have to do this with, but some look at this, and they say, oh, God regretted that he made man. He didn't see that this is how it was going to go ahead of time. Well, an important matter of Christian theology is that God does not change. He is not becoming. He is, and he always has been, and he always will be God. He is immutable. He does not change. He does not move. He is not growing. He is not learning. He's not becoming a better self. He is not maturing. That's us. But in Christian theology, God communicates himself to us as finite creatures on a level that we can understand. That is not outrageous. That's not audacious for us to believe. And it's not outrageous for us to claim God is fully capable. If he's capable of creating all that is ex nihilo out of nothing, then he is capable of communicating himself to his creatures. He's made us in his image. And actually the scriptures don't tell us a whole lot of what that means, but yet we can reasonably conclude that it does not include (laughs) us being infinite. We are finite. 
we can reasonably conclude that it doesn't include us being all-knowing. He's all-knowing, but we have limited knowledge. We see that Old Testament and New Testament. It also doesn't mean that we are perfect. We are not complete. We are not whole. We are developmental. We do move. We do change. We do grow. We do break down. God also is not made of parts. The simplicity of God is very important to understanding that his regretting that he had made man here is to put it in terms that we can understand that is not necessarily to be taken in the strictest possible sense, in a one-to-one sense, how we would mean that. If we said that we regretted something, it would be a factor of us not having foreseen. And yet we see throughout the scriptures that God knows the ends. He did know this was what was going to happen. And yet it's put in terms that we can understand. Also, you'll find in a similar vein, but I'll use a different example so that it's clearer, hopefully. We find in the Old Testament that when in English it's translated that God is slow to anger, the idiom in the Hebrew is that God has a long nose. And the reason for that is that a common expression when someone, some man with a face, <laughs> like we have faces, would get totally, fully, absolutely beside himself angry, just in a rage, just blind with rage, what would happen? Well, his face would get filled with blood. Maybe he's screaming and he's yelling and he's just, you know, he's just all worked up. But the last part of his face to get red, if a man gets red in the face, angry, the last part of his face to get all red is the tip of his nose. And so to say that a man had a long nose was to say that he is able to hold his anger. He's not quick to anger. He is slow to anger. And so when it says that about God, it's putting it in terms that we can understand. God inspiring the authors of scripture as we believe the Holy Spirit breathing out because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Paul writes in Timothy, the Holy Spirit through the human authors of the biblical canon put it in terms that we could understand. And even so, that isn't to say that we do understand, but we could. And then the secret ingredient is that God would reveal these things, but he doesn't reveal everything all at once, willy-nilly, and that's all right, right? It's okay that we don't readily, immediately know everything. In fact, there's just no other way for it to be. But I think that one of the things that is mysterious here is not just that God regretted that he made man because the earth is filled with violence. That makes a lot of sense. I think I would also regret that I had made man if, due to man's sin, the earth was filled with violence. And yet, it's very interesting that we have this little anecdote about the sons of God, seeing that the daughters of men were beautiful. They were beautiful. As an aside, there's nothing inherently ungodly about a beautiful woman. There's nothing inherently ungodly about a handsome man. Being healthy and attractive and good-looking is not a sign that there's something corrupt about you, nor either here. 
the daughters of men being beautiful is not the whole problem. That's not the issue. But who are the daughters of men and who are the sons of God? That's a big question. Also, what does it mean? Why is there something untoward about the sons of God seeing that the daughters of men are beautiful and taking any of them that they would for wives? Also, what is going on with the offspring of their unions, their sexual unions, being giants? And it says in Genesis 6 that there were giants in the land in those days, so in the days of Noah, and also afterward. So presumably, we're we're reading here that after the flood, right? After the days of Noah, that would mean before the flood and after the flood. And we see, if you fast forward to David, who becomes God's anointed, and it's through his line that the Messiah, who was promised all the way back in Eden, is come into the world to redeem us, to atone for our sins, to restore a right relationship with the sons of God, as we mean it in the New Testament, and God, that we would become sons of God. David really comes to prominence fighting a giant. I mean, it really, that's that's his introduction, uh, you know, to us and presumably also to his own context in his own lifetime. We've got the army of the Philistines and the army of Israel camped over and against each other, and there's going to be uh, combat between chosen champions for each army. The best fighter of the Philistines, the best fighter of the Israelites, each are going to go out in between the two camped armies and fight it out. And even if that's not the end of it, hey, you guys win. Our champion died. You guys win. We give up. We'll go home. You know, even if that's not the end of it, there was something to it that was almost like an appetizer for the general fight, almost like a preview or a coin toss in some sense. We're going to have these two fighters, our best, go up against each other, and then we'll commence to figuring out which side won, either by negotiation or by fighting it out. (laughs) So you've got Goliath of Gath, and he's standing between the two armies, right? David, who is a shepherd, he is something of maybe the runt of the litter or the black sheep of the family himself. He is sent by his father, Jesse, to bring food to his brothers who are in the army of Israel, camped over and against the Philistines. And David hears this giant of Gath, Goliath, taunting, mocking, scoffing at, insulting at length the armies of Israel and the God of Israel, more to the point. And David loves God. That's what it means that he's a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean that he's perfect. It doesn't mean that he does everything correct. It doesn't mean that he's always right, but he loves God and God recognizes that and sees that in David and tells us and and makes note of it for us that David loves God. But David offers to fight this uncircumcised Philistine, and he does. And he really ought not to have that good of a chance when nobody else in Israel, including King Saul, 
who was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel, was willing to go out and fight this giant. But David goes out and God does give Goliath into David's hand. And so then that begs the question of where did this giant come from? And of course, in our day, we have two kinds of explanations, not just with regards to Genesis 6-4, but also with regards to who Goliath was. We've got the boring answer and we've got the exciting answer. And I will confess to you, I like the exciting answer and I think it's much better. I think it's a much better answer all around. And I don't like the boring answers for reasons we'll get into. But anyone who would say, well, if the flood was sent to wipe out, you know, these giants, you know, like obviously that's that, right? It's over and done with. But wait a second. No, it's not over and done with because it says in those days and also afterward. And so then the question is, who are these sons of God and these daughters of men? And the boring set of answers basically come down to two principal explanations. One is the sons of Seth. So the idea here is that Abel was the righteous son born to Adam and Eve. He was the good son, if you will. But Cain, his brother, murdered him. He was jealous because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's. Cain was bitter about that and murdered his brother. Just one generation out of Eden, an Edenic existence, and we've already got fratricide. We've got brother murdering brother here. But Seth, according to the Sethite explanation, Seth was born to be the replacement good son for Adam and Eve. And so thus, in this rendering, the daughters of men are the female descendants of Cain, and the sons of God are the male descendants of Seth. So Seth and his line sought God's face. Cain murdered his own brother and was not himself killed, but then goes off and he has a line of uh, people after him, his descendants, who are like their father. They are murderers or they are corrupt or they are wicked or they are envious or they are jealous. And that's part of how you get the earth being filled with violence is because Cain brought murder into the world and his descendants also were like their father. Dr. Jordan B. Cooper, Lutheran minister, host of the Justin Sinner podcast, says that Augustine in the city of God preferred this view, the Sethite view. I'm not so sure about that. But I did watch three videos on Jordan Cooper's YouTube channel. My neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, sent those three to me after uh, some discussion we were having last weekend about this topic. And it's possible that I misunderstood Augustine. I did read The City of God last year. It's possible I misunderstood Augustine in what he was saying about the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6. But it seems to me as though Augustine is more open to other possibilities than Cooper seems to imply. I think Cooper portrays Augustine as being very uh, open shut and rejecting the more supernatural fallen angels, lesser deities explanation of the sons of God. Uh, Augustine does mention some 
supporting evidence or some things that maybe should be considered. And he also mentions the Sethite view, yes. But Augustine often does that, right? He he does that with a lot of things where he will mention several possibilities for how best to explain a passage in Genesis in particular without always making entirely clear which answer he prefers in the end or which answer is the correct one in his view. Gavin Ortland in Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, I think makes a strong case about this with regards to Genesis 1 through 3 and the creation account. And so it seems to me as though it's very reasonable to read what Augustine has to say about Genesis 6, 4 in particular in a similar vein. And so actually I have, I have uh, the quote in question, you know, the question being what did Augustine actually say about the sons of God? I have the quote in question here, and I'll just go ahead and read it for you because I think it's very interesting and it's fairly extended. So uh, bear with me. Uh, Augustine in the city of God, Augustine lived from 354 AD to 430 AD, by the way, he writes in chapter 22 of the fall of the sons of God who were captivated by the daughters of men, whereby all, with the exception of eight persons, deservedly perished in the deluge. So that is to say, Augustine holds to a literal flood happening as well. When the human race, and I quote, in the exercise of this freedom of will increased and advanced, there arose a mixture and confusion of the two cities by their participation in a common iniquity. And this calamity, as well as the first, was occasioned by woman, (laughs) though not in the same way. For these women were not themselves betrayed, neither did they persuade the men to sin, but having belonged to the earthly city and society of the earthly, they had been of corrupt manners from the first, and were loved for their bodily beauty by the sons of God, or the citizens of the other city which sojourns in this world. Beauty is indeed a good gift of God, but that the good may not think it is a great good, God dispenses it even to the wicked. And thus, when the good that is great and proper to the good was abandoned by the sons of God, they fell to a paltry good, which is not peculiar to the good, but common to the good and the evil, And when they were captivated by the daughters of men, they adopted the manners of the earthly to win them as their brides and forsook the godly ways they had followed in their own holy society. And thus beauty, which is indeed God's handiwork, but only a temporal, carnal, and lower kind of good, is not fully loved in preference to God. The eternal, spiritual, and unchangeable good. When the miser prefers his gold to justice, it is through no fault of the gold but of the man. And so with every created thing, for though it be good, it may be loved with an evil as well as with a good love. It is loved rightly when it is loved ordinately, evilly when inordinately. That's an interesting use of the word. I have heard for years inordinate. I have never heard anyone use the word ordinate, but it makes sense that if it's not inordinate, it must be either outordinate or just ordinate. Uh, Augustine continues it is this which some one has briefly said in these verses in praise of the creator these are thine they are good because thou art good who didst create them there is in them nothing of ours unless the sin we commit when we forget the order of things and instead of thee love that which thou hast made 
But if the creator is truly loved, that is, if he himself is loved and not another thing in his stead, he cannot be evilly loved. For love itself is to be ordinately loved, because we do well to love that which, when we love it, makes us live well and virtuously. So that it seems to me that it is a brief but true definition of virtue to say it is the order of love. And on this account, in the canticles, the bride of Christ, the city of God sings, order love within me. It was the order of this love then, this charity or attachment which the sons of God disturbed when they forsook God and were enamored of the daughters of men. Now, let me just stop right here. Let me be very clear. I don't think that it's necessary to disagree with the thing that Augustine is saying here or to say it's either that in terms of, you know, purely human, the Sethite view, or it's the Nephilim business and you just write Augustine off entirely. So far, I really see no reason why what he's describing about preferring the beauty of women over and against obedience to and appropriate love of God, I don't see why that can't apply to fallen angels or lesser deities or what you will. But let's continue. Uh, By these two names, sons of God, daughters of men, Augustine writes, the two cities are sufficiently distinguished. For though the former were by nature children of men, they had come into possession of another name by grace. For in the same scripture in which the sons of God are said to have loved the daughters of men, they are also called angels of God, whence many suppose that they were not men, but angels. Okay, so that, right? So that right there, pay attention to this. For in the same scripture in which the sons of God are said to have loved the daughters of men, they are also called angels of God. Now, where it says that, there is a lot else that the early church fathers wrote on these things. And I'd like to read that for you as well. But let me just make a point real quick. Augustine notes that many suppose they were not men but angels. So this was a common view. Even if Augustine preferred or explained the Sethite view, that does not mean that it was unheard of to say these are actually angelic beings or these are lesser deities. These are supernatural beings created by God with authority and power greater than common man who nevertheless are able to come and marry women and produce children with them. They're able to leave their proper abode and have children with the daughters of men. That right there, I think, is important to note. That's important to note. And there's a great deal more here I could read of what Augustine says, but I want to go back up on this uh, Marbanian Dominic or Dominic Marbaniang old blog, uh, posts on theology and culture. I'll post a link and you can check out all of the quotes here at your leisure. But let's just go through a couple briefly for the purposes of time and this podcast episode. If we have to do another episode, that's all right. It's a very interesting topic to me. I think it's a very interesting topic to a lot of people. It's something a lot of people have questions about, and uh, maybe we just don't get to it all in this episode. But Josephus Flavius, The Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 3, writes, 
Now this posterity of Seth continued to esteem God as the Lord of the universe and to have an entire regard to virtue for seven generations. But in process of time, they were perverted and forsook the practices of their forefathers and did neither pay these honors to God, which were appointed them, nor had they any concern to do justice towards men. But for what zeal they had formerly shown for virtue, they now showed by their actions a double degree of wickedness, whereby they made God to be their enemy. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. But Noah was very uneasy at what they did and being displeased at their conduct, persuaded them to change their dispositions and their acts for the better. But seeing they did not yield to him, but were slaves to their wicked pleasures, he was afraid they would kill him together with his wife and children and those they had married. So he departed out of the land. Now that's Josephus, right? That's Josephus there. And he's referencing the Greeks, the Grecians, the Greeks, potato, potato. He's referencing the Greeks and those whom they call the giants. He's also talking again about angels. And he's also talking about about Seth again, right? So what are we to make? It's a little bit muddy, admittedly. Justin Martyr, AD 110 to 165, the second apology, chapter five, how the angels transgressed, writes, but if this idea take possession of someone, that if we acknowledge God as our helper, we should not, as we say, be oppressed and persecuted by the wicked, this too I will solve. <laughs> I love, by the way, I love that. This too I will solve. <laughs> like <laughs> I could fix that. <laughs> uh, God, when he had made the whole world and subjected things earthly to man and arranged the heavenly elements for the increase of fruits and rotation of the seasons and appointed this divine law for these things also he evidently made for man, committed the care of men and of all things under heaven to angels whom he appointed over them. But the angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by love of women and begat children, who are those that are called demons. And besides, they afterwards subdued the human race to themselves, partly by magical writings and partly by fears and the punishments they occasioned, and partly by teaching them to offer sacrifices and incense and libations, of which things they stood in need after they were enslaved by lustful passions. And among men, they sowed murders, wars, adulteries, intemperate deeds, and all wickedness. Whence also the poets and mythologists, not knowing that it was the angels and those demons who had been begotten by them that did these things to men and women and cities and nations, which they related, ascribed them to God himself and to those who were accounted to be his very offspring and to the offspring of those who were called his brothers, Neptune and Pluto, and to the children again of these their offspring, for whatever name each of the angels had given to himself and his children, by that name they called them. And we'll come back to that again, and I hope I don't totally run out of time here, but we'll come back to that again, because that right there, that last little bit, that is to say, Justin Martyr holds that these are real beings. They are personal beings. They are not just ideas. This is not like Luke Skywalker is really played by Mark Hamill 
and Luke Skywalker's not real. Sorry if you didn't know that, but Luke Skywalker's not real. Darth Vader's not real. Darth Vader's voice is played by James Earl Jones, who is definitely not eight feet tall, and, you know, and, and and can't probably fight with a lightsaber very well. I would just, I I don't know. I guess I'm assuming he doesn't seem like he's in the best of physical shape, but great voice, one fantastic voice. It's not as some think. I th- I think they think of demons in this very ambiguous, ephemeral, and unreal, almost psychological, as the modern psychologists would say, sense. Justin Martyr is explicitly saying, no, no, whatever name each of these angels had given to himself and his children, that was the name the Greek poets called that angel or the demon offspring or the Nephilim who were born from their union's with women, right? So Justin Martyr's making his position, I think, much more, much more clearly towards what I would call the exciting category of answers to who the sons of God were. Athenagoras, AD 177, A Plea for the Christians, chapter 24, he writes, for this is the office of the angels to exercise providence for God over the things created and ordered by him so that God may have the universal and general providence of the whole while the particular parts are provided for by the angels appointed over them. Just as with men, so here we see a distinction. This is not to say that angels are men and men are angels. Men and angels are in separate categories, both alike created by God, but distinct. Just as with men, Athenagoras writes, who have freedom of choice as to both virtue and vice, for you would not either honor the good or punish the bad, unless vice and virtue were in their own power, and some are diligent in the matters entrusted to them by you, and others faithless, so it is among the angels. Some free agents you will observe, such as they were created by God, continued in those things for which God had made and over which he had ordained them. But some outraged both the constitution of their nature and the government entrusted to them, namely this ruler of matter and its various forms and others of those who were placed about this first firmament. You know that we say nothing without witnesses, but state the things which have been declared by the prophets. These fell into impure love of virgins and were subjugated by the flesh and he became negligent and wicked in the management of the things entrusted to him. Of these lovers of virgins, therefore, were begotten those who were called giants. And if something has been said by the poets too about the giants, be not surprised at this. Worldly wisdom and divine differ as much from each other as truth and plausibility, which I love. I I love that. I love that line. Worldly wisdom, I'll say it again. I'll read it again. Worldly wisdom and divine differ as much from each other as truth and plausibility. That is to say, divine wisdom is truth and worldly wisdom it's plausible. It could be. It's credible. The one is of heaven, Athenagoras writes, and the other of earth, and indeed, according to the prince of matter, quote, we know we oft speak lies that look like truths, end quote. He also writes in chapter 25, the poets and philosophers have denied a divine providence, is the title of that chapter, quote, these angels then, who have fallen from heaven and haunt the air and the earth 
and are no longer able to rise to heavenly things, and the souls of the giants, which are the demons who wander about the world, perform actions similar, the one, that is the demons, to the natures they have received, the other, that is the angels, to the appetites they have indulged. But the prince of matter, as may be seen merely from what transpires, exercises a control and management contrary to the good that is in God. Quote, oft times this anxious thought has crossed my mind, whether tis chance or deity that rules the small affairs of men, and, spite of hope, as well as justice, drives to exile some stripped of all means of life, while others still continue to enjoy prosperity, end quote. So we see here, again, there, there is in Athenagoras, there is in Justin Martyr, a argument for the view which Augustine says many hold to, that these were angels. These are, were not men. They weren't the line of Seth. They were uh, the sons of God in an angelic sense, if you will. They were supernatural beings. Commodianus, A.D. 240, writes in Instructions, section 3, on the worship of demons, and I quote, When Almighty God, to beautify the nature of the world, willed that that earth should be visited by angels, when they were sent down, they despised his laws. Such was the beauty of women, that it turned them aside, so that, being contaminated, they could not return to heaven. Rebels from God, they uttered words against him. Then the highest uttered his judgment against them. And from their seed, giants are said to have been born. By them, arts were made known in the earth, and they taught the dying of wool and everything which is done. And to them, when they died, men erected images. But the Almighty, because they were of an evil seed, did not approve that. When dead, they should be brought back from death. Whence wandering, they now subvert many bodies, and it is such as these, especially, that ye this day worship and pray to as gods. And so here, coming back to something we'll touch on further, this is perhaps why some like Cooper, like Jordan B. Cooper, say when we're talking demonic, they're thinking in these terms. They're thinking disembodied spirits that really are not personal in the same way that you and I are personal. You and I, we have a soul, we have a mind, we have a heart, and we have a body. We know that we have those four things because Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of each of them, with the entirety of each of them. So we must have them or else it would be very, it would be very cruel for Christ to say we need to love the Lord our God with the entirety of each of those parts of ourselves. And yet, if some spirit does not have a body, if it's a disembodied spirit, or if you will, a ghost, and what else do people call the Holy Spirit but the Holy Ghost? If it's a ghost after a fashion, it's the spirit of these beings which at some point did have physical bodies like men and they could interact like men. Well then, maybe we should not assume that it has always been so. And that as I read, Commodianus is exactly his position. That's my position. And I think that's very reasonable. So obviously, we have here some issues, right? We have a debate. And Michael Heiser is actually the one that Jordan Cooper is primarily replying to. And I'll post links in the post of this uh, 
podcast episode over at thegarrettashleymulletshow.com. If you want to check it out, if you're not already there listening, you can go uh, tomorrow is usually when, if today I recorded and published the podcast, tomorrow is when I've actually published the WordPress post to thecaredashleymulletshow.com. Otherwise, it's just going to show up as audio wherever you subscribe, whatever platform, Apple or Google or Spotify or what have you. But going back to Augustine here, I think there, there actually is a little bit more here I'd like to read. I'd like to read this. Chapter 23, Augustine writes, whether we are to believe that angels who are of spiritual substance fell in love with the beauty of women and sought them in marriage, and that from this connection, giants were born. And I quote, in the third book of this work, we made a passing reference to this question, but did not decide whether angels, inasmuch as they are spirits, could have bodily intercourse with women. For it is written, who maketh his angels spirits? That is, he makes those who are by nature spirits, his angels, by appointing them to the duty of bearing his messages. For the Greek word, angelos, which in Latin appears as angelus, means a messenger. But whether the psalmist speaks of their bodies when he adds, and his ministers a flaming fire, or means that God's ministers ought to blaze with love as with a spiritual fire, is doubtful. Right? So, you know, he's not, I, I think somebody who, who reads this too flippantly, by the way, a small side note here from Garrett, somebody who reads this too fast and not carefully enough might think that what Augustine is saying is, you know, he's rejecting one possibility and he's saying, oh, no, it's it's got to be this. But what he's what he's saying really is it's unclear, right? That's another way you could put this. It's unclear. He's not saying it's definitely not this and it's definitely this. He's just saying whether it's one or the other is, is doubtful, right? However, <clears throat> he continues, the same trustworthy scripture testifies that angels have appeared to men in such bodies as could not only be seen, but also touched. There is too a very general rumor, which many have verified by their own experience, or which trustworthy persons who have heard the experience of others corroborate that sylvans and fawns, who are commonly called incubi, had often made wicked assaults upon women and satisfied their lust upon them, and that certain devils called duzes by the Gauls are constantly attempting and affecting this impurity is so generally affirmed that it were impudent to deny it. From these assertions, indeed, I dare not determine whether there be some spirits embodied in an aerial substance for this element, even when agitated by a fan is sensibly felt by the body, and who are capable of lust and of mingling sensibly with women. But certainly I could by no means believe that God's holy angels could at that time have so fallen, nor can I think that it is of them the apostle Peter said, quote, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, end quote. I think he rather speaks of these who first apostatized from God, along with their chief, the devil, who enviously deceived the first man under the form of a serpent. But the same holy scripture affords the most ample testimony that even godly man have been called angels, for of John it is written, Behold, I send my messenger, or angel, before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. End quote. And the prophet Malachi, by a peculiar grace specially communicated to him, was called an angel. Okay, so let, this is complicated, right? And here, we'll take a break for just a second from Augustine. But this is complicated. 
This is complicated. How are we supposed to <laughs> decide whether sons of God in Genesis 6-4 is talking about angels or men if sometimes men are called angels and other times angels appear as men? How, what, what do you do with that, right? Well, I don't know, except that I look at, again, the category of answers that prefers the Sethite view as being rather boring. And I love that Augustine here gives credence to the idea that we could have some spiritual beings created by God who are rumored even, it seems like, in his day. He says, present tense are constantly attempting and affecting this impurity. It's so generally affirmed, it would be impudent to deny it. He's basically saying, no, this this happens or, or it's, you know, I, I can't deny it, right? I, I can't say it doesn't happen because there are a lot of people who say it is happening right now. There, there are these evil spirits or these, these supernatural creatures that are demonic, it would seem, or spiritual in some sense. They're not men. Sylvans and fawns, commonly called incubi, making wicked assaults upon women, which is to say trying to have sex with women. The deuces, as they're known, certain devils known by the Gauls, are constantly attempting and affecting this impurity. And Augustine basically says, could be, could be. And so I, th- you know, I think that's more correct than, you know, with respect to Jordan Cooper, I like him. I like the way he addressed some concerns I share with him about Michael Heiser. But with respect, I think Augustine is a little bit more ambiguous about what this might be. And also too, you know, if we can read when it's Paul saying, you know, not I, but the Lord or not a command from the Lord, but Paul speaking. Well, so also when Augustine says, I think this, or I just, I can't imagine it being this certain way or like, ah, you know, God's holy angels, they couldn't do this thing. You know, let's put a little asterisk there and also consider the fuller context that he's giving credence to both views. And he's admitting that a lot of people hold to the view that today is not favored by the more serious scholars as we think of them, or the people who are regarded as the more serious scholars, those who reject supernatural uh, interpretations of the biblical text, or reject literal interpretations that would lend towards a more fantastic and supernatural, uh, you know, Old Testament creation account, Genesis flood, sons of God interpretation, etc. Picking up Augustine again, he says, but some are moved by the fact that we have read that the fruit of the connection between those who are called angels of God and the women they loved were not men like our own breed, but giants. And yes, right? Thank you, Augustine. I love that you pick up on these details. And yes, what of that, right? What what do we make of that? He continues, just as if there were not born even in our own time, as I have mentioned above, men of much greater size than the ordinary stature. Was there not at Rome a few years ago when the destruction of the city, now accomplished by the Goths, was drawing near a woman with her father and mother, who by her gigantic size overtopped all others, surprising crowds from all quarters, came to see her, and that which struck them most was the circumstance that neither of her parents were quite up to the tallest 
ordinary stature. Giants, therefore, might well be born even before the sons of God, who are also called angels of God, formed a connection with the daughters of men, or of those living according to men, that is to say, before the sons of Seth, formed a connection with the daughters of Cain. For thus speaks even the canonical scripture itself in the book in which we read of this. Its words are, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair or good, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became the giants, the men of renown. It is a curious thing. What is being implied here? And what would cause the children of righteous people and unrighteous people to be giants. Following a certain line of reasoning here, if a very godly Christian man marries a very ungodly pagan woman and they have kids, those kids, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're not typically giants, right? There is something unusual about this being a theme of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men in the context of Genesis 6. There's something peculiar about that, which I think the explanation of the Sethites just does not really satisfy. Also, too, I would point out that in the preceding paragraph, Augustine has said that there are rumors of incubi and deuces trying to have sex with women, trying to assault them, and Basically, Augustine says, oh, it could be. So then what do we make of this anecdote? He says, well, there was a, a woman at Rome a few years ago whose parents were very normal height, and yet she was way taller than everybody else. People came from all over to see it. You know, So it, it could just be that tall people are born to short parents sometimes. Yeah, that could be. Also, also could be possibly, maybe, just maybe, that something else happened. But this isn't to say either that gigantism, right? Because this would be crazy town. And don't hear what I'm not saying. That every time you have giants born, that is proof that this or that woman had relations with a fallen angel or something like that. I'm not saying that, right? That is not my view. But also, too, we might be underestimating quite how tall the giants being referred to here were, you know, and even just with regards to footnotes, you'll sometimes find, I remember as a kid, I was always frustrated when I would come to the story of David and Goliath, like we were talking about earlier. And you look at the footnotes and it'll say, it, it, it'll say that Goliath was so many cubits tall. And then the footnote will say, you know, uh, probably between six and eight feet tall. It's like, well, that's actually, that's not, that's not giant, Right. That's, that's not giant in the sense that it, it would be more reasonable to read it. Very similar things are done to behemoth and leviathan references. They're certainly due, if you follow the answers in Genesis crowd, uh, their literature and some of the things they've put out, talking about a young earth creation, uh, interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3, which I hold to. That is my position. So I'm, I'm trying to be very consistent here. <laughs> Give me that. You know, there's there's also similar footnotes 
at the bottom of the page in many Bibles, many modern English translations of the Bible, which try to say that Leviathan and Behemoth were potentially a hippopotamus and a crocodile, when really the the kinds of descriptive language being you know given there, I, you know, could also be describing dinosaurs. They they could be, they they could be, especially if all of creation is really only between six and ten thousand years old, and dinosaurs were created, you know, in the same week that mankind was. They they were not all died out. And there's lots of dragon myths from all over the world from way, way back. Lots of dragon myths. I think those came from somewhere and not just people stumbling across old bones or just having fanciful imaginations. No, no, I I don't think so. So that is to say though, right? the, The Sethite interpretation I put in the same category as those who look at Genesis 1 through 3 and say, it couldn't have possibly been God creating everything in six days. That doesn't seem plausible. Those days could have been any amount of time. And let's pull on passages here and there to muddy the waters on what this seems to mean in context. And let's prefer the boring explanation so as to not look ridiculous to the broader world. And yes, yes, we should have a decent respect for the opinions of mankind, but only to a point, only to a point. You don't start ignoring the more obvious answers, as I would say. I, I wouldn't say that it couldn't be the case that God actually created all the physical material over millions and billions of years, like uh, John Walton says. I don't think that's correct, that he says that the material could have been created over any span of time, but then God, in a more ceremonial way, only declared the purpose of these things, created the purpose of these things around 6,000 years ago. He he does at least get it right that yom is yom, you know, day is day. When it says day, it means day, contextually. He gets that right, but he comes up with this really weird thing about the teleological creation as separate from the material creation. And I just, I can't follow that. <clears throat> I don't, I don't think that's correct. But I think in a similar sense, everything that is fantastic and exciting and supernatural in the Old Testament gets whittled down by the very boring. And you know, if, if we're honest, the very materialistic and mechanical biased uh, modern theologians and church people, and uh, even in Augustine's day, you know, the the, the inclination towards that is not only a modern phenomenon that also was present in the days of the Greeks and the Romans. So what else can we say, right? Uh, Another boring answer besides the Sethite answer is to say that the sons of God are the kings of men in the days of Noah. And it's interesting, Jordan Cooper admits on this point and he reads other scholars in his YouTube videos his podcasts that attest to the same, that many ancient kings claimed to be the sons of gods or descended from gods. And the explanation from those who prefer the Sethite interpretation of Genesis 6-4 as to how this could work if it's actually kings who are the sons of God here 
it seems very similar in its assumptions to Michel Foucault. And what I mean by that is all truth claims are a will to power. And so the claim that these kings were making, they knew was false. They knew it wasn't true, but it just became this fashionable thing that they say to try and you know, either get power in the first place or maintain a grip on power once they have the power. Basically, they were lying. They knew they were lying. Everybody probably knew that they were lying or only the very primitive people didn't realize they were lying because they were you know, not very sophisticated and very superstitious and we're so much more advanced now, which again goes back to the positivists. That goes back to a lot of biases in the modern world that in mainstream culture don't stop with interpreting Genesis 6 in a certain way or interpreting Genesis 1 through 3 in a certain way or don't stop with interpreting <clears throat> the global flood and David and Goliath a certain way. They don't stop with the Old Testament. They go right on into the New Testament and they dismiss all of the supernatural. Those biases are a Pandora's box, which I just don't, I don't think is good and I don't think is necessary for us to buy into on any of these passages, really. I'll note too that another explanation that I think is better with regards to the kings of men is that we see the kings of men in ancient times claiming descent from gods all over the world because they were after a fashion lowercase g gods as they were regarded by those peoples actual persons not men those deities were not men but they were some kind of a fallen angel or lesser deity that was created by Yahweh God. That's a possibility that there's something that really did happen there. And that's why we see it all over the world. We see it across the nations of the ancient world. But that is to say, I mean, the exciting answers are again, fallen angels, lesser deities. Think of Job and Heiser makes this point and Cooper gives it to him because there's really no getting around it. Contextually, in the book of Job, the sons of God who are appearing before Yahweh, when Satan begins accusing Job, saying that if God were to take away his blessings from Job, Job would curse him. He only serves you faithfully because you bless him. Those sons of God talked about in the beginning of the book of Job are pretty unmistakably either angels or lesser deities pretty clearly from the context. So that gives credence to interpreting Genesis 6, 4, the sons of God taking wives from the daughters of men. It, 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 it makes it a lot more intuitive, I think, to put those things together in your hermeneutic. Now also too, it's interesting to me, Jordan Cooper says there's no question in his mind that demons are involved in pagan worship. And to engage in pagan worship is to open ourselves up to the demonic. But then in the next little bit, he questions whether <laughs> whether Baal and Molech, for instance, in the Old Testament are real beings. You know, are they real beings? Uh, you know, just because they've got a name and there's 
you know, this belief that they are real beings. Well, my question would be, if we say we believe that the demonic is involved in pagan worship, uh, you know, what else, well, what else can that mean other than that Baal and Molech are real persons after a fashion? What else can that mean? Uh, now, you know, Cooper's not saying it doesn't mean that. He's just saying, I, I'm not sure that scripture makes it clear one way or the other. And, you know, okay, that's fair enough. That's a fair enough position to take. I don't agree with that position. I, I don't think it's necessary to be, uh, I guess, agnostic about it. So to my mind, the question remains whether we're conceding that there's evidence to reasonably conclude that a lot of what men like Heiser and several of the early church fathers concluded about this, what I conclude about this. And to repeat myself, yes, you know, if we believe that the demonic is real, but we don't believe that demons are real beings, what do we mean by saying that we believe the demonic is real? Is what is spiritually inherently and purely impersonal and conceptual then? Is this more of like a force? Is this a concept? Is it an idea? Uh, you know, are, are, are we sure that we don't start to mean spiritual something like what modern psychology means by spiritual? Where psychology, I mean, if you, if you boil it down to its roots, modern psychology, psychology is the study of the soul. But then the way that psychology is done in the mainstream is very materialistic. It's very mechanical. We as Christians should not bring that mechanical and materialistic uh, assumption, default view into our reading of the scriptures. We should instead be taking what the word of God says and then looking at the other explanations and asking the hard questions. Well, okay, yes, but does that make the most sense of the totality of the evidence? And also, is there some measure of having gotten carried away with not wanting to appear ridiculous or uh, absurd or or crazy? You know, you know, the Apostle Paul does write about with regards to speaking in tongues, for instance, in the New Testament. He says, if somebody who's not a believer comes into your gathering and hears you praying and speaking in strange tongues, won't they think that you've lost your minds? And instead of that, you should prefer to say just a few words in sensible language that everybody can understand over and against speaking in the tongues of angels and men. Now, even there, too, you know, he says, you know, the, the tongues of angels and men, well, that's curious, right? The tongues of angels and men, here we have a distinction, we have a separation, a category difference between angels and men. And that's an important difference to maintain. But I don't think we maintain that difference very well if we say, well, sometimes men are angels and angels are men. And so we can never really be quite sure with Genesis 6, 4. Uh, you know, if some of us are more sure, I think that's okay. I'm I'm fairly sure that's that is my view. If I'm wrong, well then, okay, the Lord correct me, <laughs> and, and I'm sure He will. Uh, he'll He'll correct all of us. But if if I were to say, well, you know, I'm I'm going to interpret this as men. 
what's driving that, right? Uh, I think <clears throat> I think there are sound reasons to wonder to what extent we have come to tacitly embrace materialistic and mechanical views of reality for everything in the modern age. And, you know, I, I can say that and I can try and be really careful. So as to not accuse those who are open to other interpretations like the Sethite view, uh, and it isn't to say that this is a unique problem to the modern age as if this has never been something to contend with in earlier eras. Augustine clearly does present the Sethite view as plausible, I guess you could say, or at least there is something to recommend it, as Cooper points out. I think Heiser goes too far. He's a little bit hyperbolic in his dismissal uh, of the Sethite view. But nevertheless, it's worth in a gracious and careful way explaining that there are, uh, you know, vain and human philosophies that we can be taken captive by. And we're told to take care that we don't get taken captive by those vain human philosophies. We should be careful to not get taken captive by them. And one of the predominant, if not the predominant philosophies from Augustine's day to ours has been, especially in our day, the naturalistic view. You know, there, there was an intervening period where maybe everything was spiritualized. There are still corners today where everything is spiritualized. You get stuck in traffic on the way to work and you're five minutes late. And that's, you know, some demon that needs to be rebuked for that. Uh, no, no, that's, that's not reasonable. But we can overly, you know, materialize things as well. And we can, you know, I say boring to be somewhat funny and, and tongue in cheek. I do think it's a boring uh, answer and, and explanation to say the Sethite view is correct. And I think it, it might be too convenient given the biases of our day. Uh, that's all I'll say on that. But besides the biases, it seems to me as though the Sethite view of the Nephilim is akin to the day-age theory and theistic evolution in several important respects. And and that could be the case that you know they have something in common, uh, not for no reason. You know, these views of the first several chapters of Genesis are closely related because there are some foundational assumptions common to all. Now, a couple of other passages I'll just mention briefly, and then I got to run because I'm pretty much out of time here. The gods of the nations are idols. Cooper cites that passage. You know, yes, that's said. What does it mean, right? If we can ask questions of what does it mean with Genesis 6-4, we can also ask questions about what it means that the gods of the nations are idols. When the prophets of Baal are being mocked in the showdown between Baal and Yahweh God. The jab is thrown, hey, maybe yell louder. Maybe, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he just stepped away for a minute. Uh, you're, you're not getting the response you wanted? Okay. Yeah. Did, try again. Yeah. I'll, I'll wait. Right. And so, you know, there's that. Right. And and so there is a polemical quality to that passage. And there's also a polemical quality to saying the gods of the nations are idols. And you know, if we if we're too if we're too stiff, if we're too narrow in what that can mean, then 
Yeah, it's as simple as saying, well, there are no gods except for you know figments of our imagination. A little bit of underdigested uh, potato, as Scrooge says to his former business partner, Marley, when he comes in ghost form to visit him on Christmas Eve. Nah, you're you're a bit of underdigested potato, for all I know. You're not real. I, I think, I think that the gods of the nations are idols is of a piece with maybe you should yell louder. You know, they're they're cutting themselves. They're yelling. They're desperate to get the response because they've got an audience, and this is a showdown. Their god against the god of. Elijah, you know, consider here that that Elijah is taunting and, you know, if the gods of the nations are idols is to say that there are no gods, well, then Elijah here knows that what he's saying is not strictly true because Baal doesn't really exist. He's a figment of your imagination. He's a projection of your desire for power. It's a truth claim you're making to get power over the people in a Machiavellian sense. You know, and if and if that's the view that people favor, okay, well, just come right out and say that's part of what's in the mix here. But maybe a lot of us don't even recognize that those kinds of assumptions sneak their way into how we read these supernatural texts. And also, too, I, I wonder how many of us really realize the extent to which an evolutionary view of history, human history, recorded history, mythology, religion, psychology, everything uh, is informed <clears throat> by what actually at its outset was new money trying to break into politics and, and making decisions for society when otherwise it was a union of church and state that went back to you know the days of Constantine the Great. Roman Emperor and uh, Charlemagne, Holy Roman Emperor. The church and the state were very simpatico. And then you get this new money with factories instead of huge tracts of land and a convenient cosmological alternative to what the church is teaching might just work in their favor to being able to upset the apple cart and add prestige and respectability after a fashion to their wealth as merchants. You know, Elijah, <laughs> Elijah is brutal, but he can be saying something in an exaggerated sense to make a polemical point for an audience about the worship of Baal versus the worship of Yahweh God. And so also the gods of the nations or idols can be making something of an exaggerated point because essentially, you know, if God made the angels and the lesser deities, supposing there are lesser deities that do exist, we do believe that there are demons. And if we believe that there are demons involved in false worship and pagan religion, well, then they might as well be just idols because they have no power except what God grants them. And as soon as he says, that's it. I'm taking back what was given to you. That's it. What does that mean, right? There's this language of gods and angels and men. And I personally, and I'm, this is what I'll leave you with for now, and maybe we revisit it again 
in the future. But I personally do not like the symbolic exclusive preference for how we read these things. I don't like that. I don't think that follows. I don't think that's correct. I think it's too convenient and it's a kind of flattery in many cases. Some of it's tradition at this point because you get a couple of hundred years of that. Um, you know, basically the people pouring money into seminaries, just like the people pouring money into medical schools. If they prefer a certain theory, they can pour the money into the school that's going to teach that theory or threaten to withdraw monies from the school that's teaching the theory they don't like. And, uh, you know, that's an important thing to consider. I'm not, not saying that, uh, that's all there is to it, but I read the text. I think of Professor Spencer, Dr. Spencer. I don't remember if he was a doctor or a professor, but my Western literature professor at Cedarville, his view was that the mythologies of the ancient world were predicated on real beings, real fallen angels, or what have you, powers and principalities. You know, it's more than just messengers. There are also powers and principalities, rulers in a spiritual sense, and that's not just symbolic. And the mythologies may not be 100% reliable, totally true, but you can't just dismiss it all as a lot of superstition in a self-flattering way for the modern era. You just can't. So there you go. That's that. That's all I'll say for now. Hopefully you enjoyed this. If you have any questions or if there's anything you'd like me to go into further on it, by all means, let me know. I would love to talk about this more down the road, but you'll have to give me a little bit of, uh, I guess, direction on what specifically could use fleshed out a little bit more. So as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.